Hello, language enthusiasts, and welcome to The Language Worker, a space to talk about the people involved in the language business in a broad sense. I'm interested in finding out how their training, work experience, and their passion for languages has shaped our guests' professional and, of course, personal lives. Join me on this journey to explore the multiple and unpredictable paths one can follow when we are involved in the magical world of languages. This time, I will be talking to Carrie Botois, co-founder of Charity Translators, about the importance of the Global Language Advocacy Day by focusing on community languages. So today we have a different episode. Uh, our focus is not necessarily uh, somebody's body of work <laughs> and their background. Of course, it's also included in our conversation. But today we're here because we would like to call your attention to the Global Language Advocacy Day, which is happening on the 22nd of February next week. I guess it's next Wednesday. And to tell us all about it, uh, we have Carrie. I cannot pronounce her last name. So when she introduces herself, <laughs> she will actually tell you what her name is because I cannot pronounce it. I'm not, not sure if it has some sort of a French twist or what it is. But uh, here we have Carrie. She's pretty well known amongst amongst the translators community on LinkedIn. So I'm sure everybody will recognize her uh, and it will be amazing to talk to her. So I cannot wait to hear all about, well, tell us at least a little bit about yourself and your name, please, Carrie. Hi, thank you, Risa. <laughs> yeah, it's Carrie Batois. Um, right. You're absolutely right. <laughs> it's um, the, the surname's French. The first name is Welsh. Um, oh. Yeah, and um, I'm a co-founder um, coordinator at Charity Translators. So um, we're a network, not an organisation. Mm -hmm. um, I always like to explain Charity Translators as a network um, of people. Um, and we support other charities um, and community groups with translation support, language support, um, and not just translation projects, actually. We, we offer advice and guidance and information and knowledge sharing um, to charities that reach out to us. Um, and we try and, and, and share that knowledge as, as, as widely as possible, um, specifically within the charity sector, mostly within the UK. Um, but we do um, we do interact and engage with um, community groups and, and social purpose organisations um, across the world. Um, but yes, we are mostly um, UK focused um, since that's where most of our requests for support um, come from. Mm -hmm. So I was pretty curious about your work because I'm mostly involved with the, the commercial life of language. <laughs> And you are basically on more of a community, right? That's what you call it, a community side of of the language phenomenon. So I cannot wait to hear all about that. So you have to talk about it because as you announced it, it was unscripted. And so I'm actually not here to ask questions, but to to listen to what you have to say and learn from you. Thank you. Well, this is a great opportunity for me. Um, because as you said at the beginning there, um, next week is Global Language Advocacy Day and hopefully um, we'll be able to share this um, talk, or this conversation that we're having um, on Global Language Advocacy Day. Mm -hmm. um, and it is um, a, a wonderful organize, organization. Also, I would call it a network as well mm -hmm. um, called the Global um, Coalition of Language Rights. Mm. Uh, a lovely, wonderful group of people from all over the world who um, are coming together to advocate for language rights. Um, and that's, I suppose, where I'm connected to it, because that's essentially what we're trying to do um, with charity translators is to support languages um, and try and try and meet those language barriers um, that happen all the time in 
all kinds of different contexts, mm -hmm. although we focus very much on the charity sector. And today is a great opportunity really to talk about community languages. Mm -hmm. So what and... are those really? <laughs> that's a, that's a, as you know, it's a brand new concept to me. I told you before, and I was really surprised that it even existed as a concept. So if you could just start by talking about that. Absolutely. Yes. Well, the concept of community languages is obviously um, one that can change, I suppose, depending mm -hmm. on where you are. But as a term, um, it's actually been around for a very long time, um, for decades, <laughs> actually. Um, mostly, I would say maybe in kind of academic circles, mm -hmm. um, this idea of community languages um, has been around for a long time. Um, I'm specifically talking about the UK context. Right. And that's why I say, I think, you know, ideas or definitions or, or what it might mean mm -hmm. um, can vary quite significantly. Um, so I'm only talking about the UK context because I wouldn't dare. And it also depends um, on the communities that you have around your area, right? Absolutely. So all of that. Um, but in recent years, mm -hmm. actually, this idea of community languages or this term, this phrase, um, has become a lot more mainstream. Um, we saw it actually a lot during the COVID pandemic in the UK, this idea of community languages. And I would say actually it's mostly used um, in a more mainstream way by governments, government agencies, institutions, mm -hmm. um, you know, so that's where maybe it's coming into the, the public um, consciousness a bit more is through these these kind of public facing um, mm -hmm. organizations that mm -hmm. are using this term community languages and essentially what it means in the UK is um, languages that aren't English to put it very <laughs> right. bluntly and actually that's exactly what it means right. and that's the way they they understand it when they use community languages mm. and I suppose what it essentially what it means is um, languages that are within the community, within our communities, um, that aren't the dominant language. Mm -hmm. so, so in your case, in your experience, and because obviously you're you're very connected to you know the, the world of translation from a different perspective, but you are. Um, so what languages are we talking about in your in your specific experience? Well, there's, that's actually quite interesting because the UK has always been a multilingual, place um so you know it's it's often seen as english you know english could see could be seen as the the greatest or maybe biggest export of <laughs> of the uk um but it's my actually, favorite i have to say <laughs> <laughs> um but the uk is multilingual it's always been multilingual you know there's welsh there's scots there's irish mm -hmm. um and these are often maybe characterized now as minority languages or hmm. heritage languages you know um but it's true that they're not you know they are maybe not as common and that's absolutely you know it's not as common as english mm -hmm. um that's that's for sure but in terms of community languages that tends to be understood and like, like i say by the government by institutions etc as as almost languages of migration Mm. Um, so here we're talking about every single language. Um, it's it's huge. Mm -hmm. um, what's really interesting, there was a um, a population census that took mm -hmm. place in the UK in 2021, and that um, really looked at and asked for what languages were were kind of happening in the UK, <laughs> uh, and which is fascinating um, data. Uh, for want of a better word, um, and there's we're talking over a hundred, you know, more than a hundred languages that are represented. Um, so we're talking about languages like Polish, Arabic, oh. mm -hmm. um, Romanian, Urdu, Farsi, um, Bengali. Um, you know, all kind of languages of of migration, um, uh, and those are yeah. So that's that's how I how I would say others. Or the institutions um, describe community languages. Mm -hmm. So, if you have people who speak French or Portuguese or one of those more, let's call it mainstream in Europe, 
uh, languages you wouldn't consider them community languages or would this be included if you had like a particular percentage of the population in a specific area i think that's a, i think that's an interesting question actually um because yes they are community languages yeah mm. i would i would i would definitely consider um europe or you know any language that isn't seen as the dominant language mm -hmm. um, i.e english in in the case of the uk as a community language yeah because they were brought in by other communities that mm -hmm. are now your community <laughs> i guess that's what's behind that right yeah i think the interesting maybe distinction and and something i think we should probably not shy away from actually mm -hmm. is that um there's maybe a perception or a, a belief or an understanding that that those um, mainstream, let's say dominant mm -hmm. um, European languages, French, Spanish, German. Mm -hmm. um, and I think we should come on to those, those maybe languages in a, in a little while, um, are often seen as people with those languages tend us perceived as, as having maybe um, a really a better grasp of the English language or mm -hmm. more proficiency yeah in the English language um so they might not be always considered as you maybe automatically assume that maybe they wouldn't be classed as community languages I right. would class them as that um but I think maybe more widely those mm. those perceptions come in and, and those languages wouldn't be considered as community languages yeah because it, it has to do with the idea that we have about the people right who speak those languages so we we may to think oh no i mean of course portuguese people there's a lot of portuguese people in in, in the uk everybody knows that and uh i wouldn't even think that it would be a problem on a first glance but then uh, <laughs> if we look at it from another perspective from a more social perspective uh, it depends on what people's lives are like once they immigrate right and I've Absolutely. been an immigrant myself and obviously I was lucky enough that uh, the two countries that I went to were the United States and Spain <laughs> so com communication was never an issue I didn't even take that into consideration given my specific situation but I can only imagine how it is for someone who hasn't had the contact that I have had with those languages from those countries where I decided to go to and live there but still, uh, the whole shock of learning other things that you don't know because you know a language, obviously. So that could take us very far. But for example, um, talking about specific situations that you cannot run away from, uh, such as dealing with the IRS or with a bank or with school for your kids. And all of this brings in a new dimension of language that we don't think about when you think about languages from my usual point of view, which is translation for websites, for internationalization, from all of that, right? So those things were actually shocking to me. And you don't even have to go that far because, for example, uh, food was my... I would say my main problem. Food yeah, and I think, <laughs> and I actually think there's also a lot to be said for um, maybe regardless of your, as we're talking about the UK, mm -hmm. um, your English language level of proficiency. I think there's still a lot to be said for how you receive and understand information in your mm -hmm. own language, exactly, compared to um, your second language. Mm -hmm. And I think that's I think that's a really and that's why I would consider all languages that aren't the dominant language yeah, as being a community sense. language, yeah. because, you know, like you say about education or, in, you know, um, that how you understand information in your own language is different to how you, un you, you know, it's, it's, there's less of there's less there's less of a barrier there. Mm -hmm. And I think that was definitely shown during the COVID pandemic and the translating and the, the interpreting of that information. Um, so, I, yeah, so I think there is a lot to be said for that. So, uh, so a really great sorry. example would yep. be, for example, imagine if you, you, you needed, you wanted to go to therapy, mm -hmm. you know, and you lived in the UK. Imagine having that therapy session in your second language as opposed to your first language. Mm -hmm. That's very different. Yeah, you know exactly. No, and everything and else that is for real life—that's that's that's my experience from real life. I had to learn basically everything because, yes, I, I could even know the words, but 
the specific meaning in the context, it's a whole other story. And, and I can only imagine the shock of someone coming from a very different culture, for example, because the European example is not so good because obviously we're more open to the world. We've been places, most of us. But a lot of people who come from other places in the world where realities are very, very different. Absolutely. And I think that is one element that I often I often see in ter- or I often yeah understand in terms of community languages that it is very place based. Um, it's about the individual mm. and how they interact with the you know with the world around them. There are there are many social spaces a bit like what you just said now about how you know your kind of language world is about localization, translation, mm. kind of business. Yeah. Um, but in terms of the individual actually they're interacting with multiple spaces mm-hmm. you know whether it is employment or education whether it is healthcare or you know legal settings um whether it is more social whether you know whether yeah they're not about, dealing with work they're they're dealing it's, with it's their every, real well, life there's, yeah. yeah there's so many different elements yeah. to it um and how that kind of i suppose you know family life everything you know and how that that in how that relates to them um can be very different and how that relates to overcoming language barriers or how people respond to language barriers mm-hmm. um can be very is very different in all of those settings mm-hmm. um i think that... that's and that's a, a really kind of you know it's a really interesting it's a really interesting point yeah. um that actually there are so many areas where language barriers may need to be addressed or supported uh, where language rights should be supported and to be honest it's not always it's not always you know it's not always good enough Mm -hmm. I would say in my opinion that's why charity translators exists you know um that actually the 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 ability um to be able to respond to language barriers is is not always the ideal and how you know and it's it's true you know over the years I've had to accept the fact that um the ideal is, is almost um the exception mm-hmm. to the rule um which is which is a shame in many situations um we see it in the UK a lot actually challenges to do with um especially in areas like healthcare um, engaging with government institutions, um, but also on a on a more kind of let's say outside of those institutions, there's whole areas as well, you know. And that's why we work with the char- that's why I work with the charity sector um, because it's an area that that is often one of the most difficult areas, I would say, for responding to language barriers. Yes, and I'm wondering how you actually do it. <laughs> how do you go about finding or matching those translators and interpreters to the needs that you know exists in the community you're focused on? It's like amazing to me because I know how it goes in in when you're looking for people to to work in your in your project, right? And everything is uh, commercially <laughs> discussed, right? Rates and uh, time periods blah 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 all of that mm-hmm. stuff uh so is it uh, i I, th- I think as you know i've told you before that uh someone like you has great uh ideas and input for the rest of us who work uh closely to the more closely to the commercial side of, of languages because since you don't have that in the equation so what happens how how do you go about finding these people how how do they get matched to the the specific needs in the community it's how a great it really great question <laughs> it's such a great question um first of all um i would say you know our, our initial response is always about knowledge sharing um, so if a charity, when a, when a charity contacts us, and actually it's not just charities that contact us, you know, mm. we have a wide variety of, of people who contact us that we can't really support because they are mm. from the business sector or they're from oh. an academic world, you know. Why would they um, contact you? That, well, this is, this is, uh, <laughs> yes, this is, this is the issue, I suppose, that we come down to, which uh-huh. is, tends to be the, the, the cost question. Right. Um, but also a lack of knowledge, I think 
when um, people see um, a network or a charity like Charity Translators, they feel they can approach us and, mm -hmm. and get information that is um, maybe unbiased, um, you know, so I think there's mm -hmm. an element of that as well. Um, but yeah, just to come quickly to, I suppose, how we do things um, is obviously we're very lucky to have um, lots of, let's say, knowledge on our team. Um, obviously, I've worked I've worked in this area for over a decade, so mm -hmm. I've developed, you know, quite a um, a huge amount of knowledge and under being able to understand and interpret people's needs when mm -hmm. they contact us. You know, I very much take that that approach of a knowledge sharing approach you know um we never dictate to anybody what they should do or how they should do it it's about giving them the information so that they can then make the choices or or respond in a way that that works for them um so that's that's definitely the initial point um sadly and you know it's really hard um for us as a as a charity but we don't support interpreting oh you don't i thought no. you did hmm. no um we only work with text-based translation mm. support um there are numerous reasons why that ha why i that I, I can understand yes <laughs> can um understand. As, as you can imagine <laughs> that, but yeah. as we say as we say to the charities that reach out to us you know it's very difficult to find volunteers with the right languages, mm. the uh, level of experience needed for what you're doing, mm. um, the availability at the time you need it um, yeah. to be able to coordinate that. And there's, and there's other aspects as well, such as safeguarding, you know, um, um, DBS, which is like, you know, about um, making sure there's no criminal offences that the mm. volunteer might have, you know, lots of, lots oh. of, um, complications around because doing... of the settings right because it, it's yes. health it's prison who knows it's court. not necessarily i mean <laughs> that, that's the interesting thing about the charity sector actually is people will often automatically assume that it's you know really almost Hardcore. critical yeah 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 you know really critical stuff right. but but our volunteers did a project not recently which was a community garden project oh <laughs> that just that just wanted to to advertise what they did to people in their community who huh. speak other languages you know so there's, like there's this, you know there's this huge array of of charities some do very critical um very critical intense work Gary, you need to others you know, don't you know you need it's, to it's, speak up about all of this because i i don't think the vast majority of us even if we are as deeply involved in thinking learning working on languages cannot even begin to fathom any of that <laughs> information yeah in any it's, a, it's, way. Such, it's such <laughs> a diverse um area um but but so sadly you, we don't support interpreting because it's not something we're geared up to do um but we do signpost so if somebody does need interpreting then we can at least explain mm -hmm. the dynamics of interpreting give them information um, so that they understand what it's about. And then we can signpost maybe other agencies, um, other charities that maybe could help them mm -hmm. and possibly even, you know, um, professional services if, if that's what's required, you know, so we can at least support them um, mm -hmm. in interpreting. But in terms of the translation work, um, we obviously screen the charities, screen the projects, make sure it's suitable as a volunteer project then um we reach out to the network mm -hmm. you know we're now i think we're over 1200 volunteers now in the network um we see if if anybody can help so we wait to hear back if we mm -hmm. have if we have enough volunteers to to manage the project um then then we go ahead and then we tell the charity that we can go ahead. So they're aware that we can only support them if we have the volunteers to, to right. do that. Um, and then we do do a almost a two two phase, sometimes three phase process, depending on the situation where we have volunteers do the, the first draft, the, the translation. And we have um, other volunteers who, who tend to have more experience in translation, do the review and those kind of updates. Mm -hmm. um, and then we send it back to the charity with all the disclaimers that need to be done when you're, you know, when you're working with in a voluntary kind of area. 
Um, so it's a lot more complicated than just yes. <laughs> yeah, it's a lot more complicated. You know, we have to we have to look at the the project. Sometimes sometimes the project needs editing mm-hmm. before it can go for translation. Or oh, you mean the original have... text? Yes. Will... Yeah, yeah. Because oh. they you know many people will use acronyms or you know the charity mm-hmm. sector. Like I said, is diverse. You have met you have some organisations that are highly organised and you know. Mm-hmm almost almost <laughs> like a business uh, yes. you know and then you have small community groups who that you know what they've written they've done themselves they're not copywriters mm-hmm. so um, who they... tends to come to you bigger oh. institutions or smaller institutions you all kinds pinpoint. all kinds to be honest there's uh-huh. yeah it's um it's always a surprise <laughs> <laughs> i bet yeah this is why I say that I can only imagine the, the type of information you could convey in a professional setting, because I mean, you you know about so many things that the rest of us usually don't think about. Because Well, and also what's been interesting, especially over, you know, the whole 10 years is actually um, coming to realize all these different nuances, these different pressures, these different areas that I suppose it's not something you necessarily see in the language industry mm-hmm. in terms of and when I talk about the language industry or the profession I'm very careful to make to <laughs> kind of highlight that I tend to be talking about business yes you know um which and there's there are lots of almost connections between business and or you know the translation profession um and the charity sector or the social sector mm-hmm. that maybe we should put it and that you know it does intersect um but that that there are lots of things i suppose that maybe a more how to, i don't know how to describe it but i suppose things about the profession that are not always the same in the social setting mm-hmm. yeah. um so i mean the clear example if we're talking about and as we're talking about business mm-hmm. you know businesses um have an income they have profits if they're translating material then it tends to be in order to make profit Mm -hmm. you know so there's a there's somewhat of a budget there even though as you know (laughs) in the profession itself those budgets tend to be always squeezed or not enough or you know so there are problems there too um but in terms of um the charity sector um these are you know these are organizations for the most part that do not have any kind of budget or money or mm-hmm. you know for for language support right. um i think something like i think it's some off the top of my head i think it's only something like 12 percent of registered charities in england and wales have a budget of more than two hundred and fifty thousand pounds mm-hmm. a year i mean if such a small amount of charities have more than that you can imagine, you know, it's like an iceberg effect, really, of all the charities that just don't have um, any kind of any kind of possibility of of supporting um, the people they're trying to help with languages mm-hmm. and trying to, you know, it's just it's just impossible. Um, and to be honest, even the charities that do have much bigger budgets, much bigger income, let's say, um, that all tends to be allocated. Mm-hmm. You know, I think um, again, off the top of my head, I think ninety-five percent of the income of the whole charity sector is spent, which means there's only five percent of of leeway for anything that may not be expected. And as we know, actually, in the profession, it's not always it's not easy to to um, determine in advance what you might need. You know, mm-hmm. it's, you know, those, those are difficult things, you know, yeah. even, even the, the most um, well-financed, organized charity who knows that they're dealing with people with other languages, they, they will budget maybe for something to help those, but then something might happen, for example, <laughs> an influx of refugees. Right. And, and we've seen that in the UK due to the war in Ukraine. Mm-hmm. But actually, all of a sudden, there's a there's a huge demand um, for language services and, and language support, and that hadn't you know it hadn't been you can't you can't you predict can't guess that, yeah you can't predict it in advance and and so there's all kinds of yeah all kinds of let's say 
complications yes um, it's true. but I think it is quite interesting and maybe maybe looking at the um the language support for Ukrainian refugees is mm -hmm. an interest is you know is an interesting case example in a way for talking about community languages and and how that's um how that can be a challenge for charities but mm -hmm. actually also for public services um government agencies um healthcare systems etc um so if you you know you can as we were talking earlier about actually thinking about the person mm -hmm. the individual and how they're kind of interacting um with different areas um that you know there's the family setting mm -hmm. so in the uk um many host families came forward to to host um refugees from ukraine mm -hmm. um absolutely you know wonderful um but obviously there's a language barrier there in the family so oh, in yes. a sense you know <laughs> um so we've seen a lot of um examples of using technology mm -hmm. the famous google translate right you know. <laughs> the infamous <laughs> infamous absolutely <laughs> the infamous google translate um has has been relied on a lot but also other apps um mm -hmm. so the the speech apps where you know they speak in english it comes out in ukrainian uh, and that's been happening kind of in the family in family settings and social settings um and i think we're going to touch a little bit now on the um what i tend to call the professional problem the professional the, problem the, <laughs> a professional problem <laughs> okay uh, when it comes to community languages mm -hmm. so um as we know the profession is kind of set up in the i'm talking i'm again i'm going to talk about the uk specifically because mm -hmm. i know it's it's kind of different you know everywhere in by profession you mean translation translation interpreting mm -hmm. yep um so what you know who is a professional right um you know <laughs> um as we know the language industry is regulated but almost self-regulated in a sense mm -hmm. so in the uk um you know you tend to have a master's degree in languages in translation mm -hmm. interpreting um there are other um qualifications um that you can have in order to kind of benchmark you as a professional mm -hmm um all kinds of you know there are different options and different varieties right um but for example in in the in the case of um ukrainian refugees what became very clear very quickly was that the lack of um professional translators and interpreters with ukrainian mm -hmm. it it was you know it became obvious very fast that actually the 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 number of mm -hmm. individuals who were translators and interpreters by profession mm -hmm. and who met those those standards um in in the industry of okay you know they're professional um qualified experienced trained very few mm. um so as you can imagine with you know so many people requiring language support whether it's in you know talking with government agencies healthcare um and it, the list goes on you know there was a a, a real shortage of professional services um yeah. so you know in so being able to respond to this new, almost new community language in in terms of numbers and you know and size um of was was clear um there was a real big problem mm -hmm. um and actually in terms of um supporting those people that became a problem so um, what happened well what ha what happens is <laughs> what happens is um that people rely on google translate um the apps uh family friends um people who um speak both both the languages but aren't under that label professional you know professional right. translator interpreter they do other jobs they might be lawyers <laughs> they might be doctors they might be you know but they have both of those languages yeah it's probably an um, heritage language for them <clears throat> what happened here so um so you know that's exactly what happens mm. uh, and we've you know i've seen it in the charity sector 
that actually, you know, I've seen charities basically advertising for volunteers with the languages that they need to help. Um, sometimes um, even jobs, you know, to come and help um, support and those language barriers. Um, so, yeah, so it, it's, um, you know, that, and I think that's a, what I call in terms of community languages, that's what I call the professional problem. Mm -hmm. Because um, in the UK, and I'm always just just talking about the UK, yeah. just to make that very, very clear all the time, just <laughs> <Yes>. think UK, <laughs> um, that um, master's degrees in translation and interpreting, um, traditionally, it's been French, Italian, mm -hmm. Spanish, German. More recently, great to see, yes, um, programs now available in Arabic mm -hmm. and Polish. Mm -hmm. um, but I would love to hear if anybody's watching this and, and knows of a MA in translation or interpreting in the UK, in Farsi, in Urdu, <laughs> um, you know, Bengali, let me know because I've not seen one, mm -hmm. you know. Um, so, we, you know, there are, and that, in a sense, that's what I call the professional problem when it comes to community languages, is that there are lots of professional translators and interpreters, loads. Mm. Um, but there are so much, there are fewer by crazy number um, of those who are qualified or trained or, or seen as, you know, in terms of the standards yeah. um, of the profession in, in the UK um, that have those community languages. Romanian, yes, that makes Lithuanian, <laughs> you know, um, so that's a huge, you know, that's a huge problem in terms of language rights. It's a huge problem in terms of supporting people with language barriers if you go on that basis that you have mm -hmm. to have a professional. Right. You know, so and, and, you know, we were talking earlier about thinking of the individual in their community, in their space. Now, if you're in a imagine you're in a town, a random town, not London, not Manchester, mm -hmm. not Bristol, you know, imagine you're in Paynton which is a, exactly, it's a small, <laughs> you know, a, a much smaller town, right? you know, but, you know, but imagine that you're there and you need language support. Right. You know, I mean, we're very lucky this, these days that um, there's telephone interpreting. Yeah. You know, so if you're in a, a, you know, a hospital or you go to your local GP and and you need language. I know, learned and, that from you last time, and I used it in a presentation. Yeah, I used your this example. <laughs> your local doctor, exactly. exactly. Um, and you you need language support. Then there are options there to use telephone interpreting. Um, it, you know, in terms, especially in those, what let's say, call them more high risk environments, hospitals, mm -hmm. you know, legal system, um, etc. Um, there are possibilities of getting a telephone interpreter. You're less likely in those remote, let's say, not so urban areas to right. find somebody who can mm. actually come, mm. for one. Uh, and also, if we're talking about community languages that are maybe not as well resourced in a professional, let's say, by professional standards, right. then what happens if, the, you know, the, the smaller number of people who can respond to those community help with those community languages and then telephone interpreting across the country what happens if a number of people needing that language all need it at the same time <laughs> right just see what i mean there's you know mm. and that's what i mean about the professional problem like i say that, it's like things we don't usually think about because yeah. in the industry we tend to tend to think about those mass uh, languages where that's why everybody when they do their they're doing their training in translation usually like you say they tend to go to very specific language pairs and most of us are, are still there and we'll always still there and i think that if you ask someone in most countries in europe if they want to study translation what is their source language they will say english right mm -hmm. <laughs> so i guess it's it's a pretty common thing to do but i don't think we can go any further in this conversation without talking a little bit bit more about you because um <laughs> you've you've done it a lot you've you've talked about the fact that you're not a let's call it language professional by those uh standards that well that's interesting actually because 
Um, I do have an MA in translation. Well then. <laughs> so, yeah. So actually, um, I am. I, I I do meet. Let's say very much meet the standards of, of being a. a You're professional, just not a professional translator. But I, as but I do. But I do not work. As in, I do not work in the industry. I do not earn my my um my salary from being a translator right or interpreter but i just find it funny because you know so much about it probably a lot more than a lot of the people who work professionally in the industry and you don't consider yourself a, a professional by by certain standards let's say that at least not a professional uh translator which is totally fine because it, in my books uh being a professional translator doesn't make you a language professional, right? Because language professionals come in all shapes and sizes. And this is why I called the, the podcast the, the language worker, specifically because anybody who works in, in languages, not necessarily in the language business, but I usually focus on that because that's more common in my world. But this is why I thought it was so interesting to, to bring you in for this other fresh perspective on not of not working in this as such but basically all the work that you do let's face it is about languages anyway Absolutely. because even your phd research can we know a little bit about that too <laughs> well um the yeah the research came about entirely because of working in languages for so long yeah um i found it and actually that's you know there's as I was just saying about all these almost contradictions or, you know, catch 22s when it comes to languages, um, that I was just seeing all of this challenge, um, but also such a lot of opportunity, you know, um, there's, there's a huge amount of opportunity to be able to share that knowledge with people so that they can respond in a more mindful way towards community languages and, and really you know there's there's a lot lot of opportunity there but yes there's a lot of challenge there's a lot of contradiction so this and is why you didn't become a translator because was this your intention at some point or what happened no um <laughs> i was never i actually never intended to become a a, a freelance translator mm -hmm. um i went into i got my ma purely because of um volunteering okay. uh, and and yeah and understanding the the complexities of it um and also yeah. i'm very much the type of person that if i want to do something i want to learn you know um i want to i, I want to learn i want to you know educate myself essentially so when you first what... went to university what did you study um international relations mm. and politics Okay, yeah. just so, like my brother, exactly the same. So yeah, so that was that was the you know, and my own experiences throughout my whole life as well. I suppose brings me much closer to community languages rather than the profession. So being bilingual, um, having you know family members um, who don't speak English. So as a child, I did child language brokering to a very small extent, you know, but. Um, as and as I went through my um, my career as well, you know, I was continuously confronted with um, opportunities. That might be a nicer way of putting it to translate and interpret mm -hmm. because I was bilingual. So essentially, I I um, I was trained in translation and interpreting almost through like a baptism <laughs> of fire. Um, because let's let's be honest you know the translation industry and profession is quite a new one in terms of um, the standards and you know etc you know um, language translation and interpreting has been happening for centuries yes. without an MA you of know it, you know it's only been in the last 50 years that it's professionalized yes let's say mm -hmm. um, so yes there is still a lot of um Un, you know just a lack of let's say a lack of awareness mm. um in in many profession in many industries or business sectors where they still you know there is a belief that um any you know that translation or interpreting is almost a natural thing and mm -hmm. in a sense and, and actually don't get me wrong because there are many going back to these different areas and spheres of, of work of where um languages happen 
Mm. There are many of those areas that no, do not need an MA in translation or mm -hmm. interpreting. You know, there's it, it really, it really doesn't. Um, the business world, I would say, absolutely does need yeah. um, people who are trained, experienced, etc. Because you know, it's they're looking for a certain level of, of, um, you know, of, of, of real you know perfection mm. so we say you know they're looking you know the business world is looking for highly polished um uh, highly polished um translation and like you said and it's a very specific purpose you know, that is not to look at one individual but to look at yeah. the masses and also to look at where the communication is happening so i'll be honest you know throughout the, the 10 years i've been working um in the charity sector with languages i've come across a lot of um a lot of uh, disparaging reactions you know oh you can't do that that's not that's not right um you need professionals to do that and it's like mm -hmm. well actually <laughs> <laughs> we 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 can we can see when we do the screening and when we understand the circumstances whether professional support is needed or not mm -hmm. you know and i think and that's why i say i said at the beginning that you know I never come, I never engage with a charity in a kind of dictating or, or almost autocratic way that says you have to, you have to get a, a highly qualified experienced interpreter or translator to do that. Um, I, it's just not, um, it's not even feasible at times, as we talked about the cost question, you know, the, 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 the lack of professional people with those language you know there's all all many challenges but on a very you know in a way on a very basic level it depends on the circumstances mm, yeah so i'll sense. give you i'll give you a clear example of a charity in response to the you the ukrainian um influx um mm -hmm. wanted to set up a volunteer service um of, of language volunteers and the reaction was, oh, no, 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 no. You got to have professionals to do that, you mm -hmm. know. And and I could almost see, you know, this person, the, you know, the kind of almost adversarial, you know, kind of straight away. And, I, and this charity was kind, kind of said, oh, well, don't worry. It won't be anything. It won't be anything critical. It's not anything, you know, you could almost see them saying, no, don't worry. It's not about, you know, it's... <laughs> it's not life-threatening situation right. here um because what they're talking about is is helping a um a ukrainian woman with a two-year-old child go to a play group okay <laughs> because so, this is how we look at it we're so used to looking at it from a certain perspective and i think and i think that's and that's why i'm always very conscious never to bring my professional knowledge or my mm -hmm. professional maybe bias to the situation mm -hmm. because i don't know their situation yeah. in terms of i don't know their financials well i tend to understand because actually <laughs> right. when it comes to screening charities mm -hmm. you know we have a look at what they do how they do it how they're financed you know because oh. in order to support a charity through charity mm -hmm. translators we have to do we have to almost make sure that we're supporting the the right people mm -hmm. uh you know and we're not inadvertently um doing translation work for a company right, you see right. what i mean so that you know we have to screen the charity we also have to screen the project mm. we have to check the project we have to see is it suitable for volunteers or actually is a is somebody who's professional required right. but that's a gray area as well mm, yeah because <laughs> actually yes there are benchmarks of what makes a professional but that's not regulated mm. you know um so I think it's becoming better now, um, you know, depending on whether a translation translation agency is with an association that requires benchmarks in terms of professional qualifications and experience. But there are also plenty of translation agencies out there who may not be registered with a with a a body, an association. In being ISO certified, right. Exactly. Exactly. <laughs> and and in those situations how does the charity let's take let's take keep it in the charity thing they're going to let's say pay for an interpreter or for some translation but then that charity isn't aware that actually there are plenty of companies out there that don't necessarily that aren't iso certified mm -hmm. and actually 
those translators and interpreters may not have that high level of qualifications and experience that meets mm -hmm. what they need. Do you see mm -hmm. what I mean? So, yeah, so, I didn't know, you know it played such an important part in, in your specific uh, experience that people were more or less qualified or what the story was. Well, it's, thought... it's, it's such a, it's such a, it's such, it's, it's so varied, isn't there? You can have somebody who's, who's qualified, um, who's got an MA in translation, who maybe has two years of experience. Um, but that's a very different um, offering to somebody who's, let's say, has, has, um, has 10 or 15 years of experience mm -hmm. you know and in terms of meeting what the charity might need uh, you know it's like I say it's, it's almost like how long is a piece of string with any so of how do things. you yourself do it do you go by your feeling by your in what sense like when you have to imagine that you have people to choose from I don't know if that's the case volunteers to choose from for a certain project but I suppose you do depending on the language pair mm -hmm. so how do you go about that do you go by your gut feeling or you also evaluate their CV or how does Absolutely. that go <laughs> yes <laughs> yeah yeah that's exactly that's exactly how we do it um we evaluate we um we ha yes we have to see how what kind mm -hmm. of experience somebody has uh and then decide whether so they cannot have say the, hey it, Carrie here I am and I know how to speak uh, Farsi and English and take me I can yeah oh uh, we we have a very, about your garden <laughs> we have an open door policy absolutely open door policy to everybody who wants to support mm -hmm. languages in the community how we do that is you know it's, it's almost one of my mantras is I don't care who does it but it does matter how it's done <laughs> right you know <laughs> um and that's why when it comes to translation projects, first of all, we make sure that it's suitable for volunteers. Then the first phase will be, you know, whoever whoever's come back and, and joined the project will do the translation phase. And the review phase, people assigned to that review phase will all, always have been seen as having more experience mm -hmm. in the translation. And it's collaborative. You know, so it, it's very different to what has traditionally been in the profession as the kind of lone wolf attitude where you get a translation you, you do the translation you self-review you send it back to the client I know that's right. changed very that's changed in recent years where there is a much more let's say review aspect mm -hmm. um, but there's but there's still very little collaboration mm -hmm. uh, where people can talk to each other yeah. or you that's can go right. back you know the, it's still more translation review Da, da, you know and in a way that's that's kind of how we that's how we approach it mm -hmm. um so yeah yeah so this means that you have some sort of an agency really it's just not a commercial Ouch, agency. that's a terrible word <laughs> <laughs> i know i know even in the industry people you have to call it a company if it's a certain way you have to call it an agency no we're definitely a network way. we're definitely a network um that's how that's how we've always we've always operated yeah but um, you, you do take little bits of information from here and there and make whatever you you need mm. to 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 get your your goal of helping people in their very specific yeah and there's yeah like I say you know we 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 try and we try and share information as much as possible so if and we and also what's I think is also really important is just understanding where they're coming from mm -hmm. you know and that's and that's it's almost vitally important to to understand what where they're coming from what they're as a charity right um you know um what they're trying to achieve i mean at the end of the day they don't have to support languages at all right you know they really don't have to um so the fact that they're trying mm. is already something quite amazing yeah you know um and then yeah just being mindful and, and having some empathy with their situation that actually you know they're they're trying um in an ideal world you know if if somebody said to me in a dream world Mm -hmm. how would you support <laughs> in a dream how would you support community right. languages and in a dream world i would say there would be a big pot of money because <laughs> you think that would make everything very different you know there would be a big pot of money whereby that could be allocated to charities to support languages and to help the people they're trying to help because essentially 
charity translators is about helping the people Mm -hmm. We do that through charities because that's the that's the way we can do it. We're not okay. in a way we're not really there to help charities. We're there to help the people who people. need the language mm -hmm. support, you yeah. know, so we kind of do it in a bit of a. Mm. It's just um, to organize things, right? So it's... It, it makes sense. Yeah, absolutely yeah. makes sense. Um, yeah. So, yeah. So I think that's the important thing is understanding their circumstances, their situation, knowing mm -hmm. what is what is possible. Um, but I would definitely never say to someone, oh, no, you can't use volunteers. You can't do this. You can't do that. You have right. to you have to do a fundraising event in order to be able to pay for an interpreter. Hmm. But then I also have to explain to them how if they are going to pay for an interpreter, what they need to know. Mm -hmm. They need to ask about the qualifications. They need to ask about what experience they need to ask about. Have they worked in the, their, their specific area of work before? Uh, they need to know about briefing a translator, a volunteer translator or interpreter. What, you know, what, what information do they need to provide? You know, so there's all kinds of facets to it. Um, and it is very bespoke. That's mm -hmm. the thing. Every single charity is different. Every single project or need is different. Um, and you have to meet them. But yes, I do wish I, there was a big pot of money that... <laughs> You could just go, oh, this charity needs a, 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 a an interpreter. Great. There you go. Get get yeah. a professional. But mate, but check this. Because you know, it's not just about saying, Oh, I'll get a professional. It's about making sure that professional meets what they need. Um, so there's some interesting research that I read not so long ago that actually suggested that um um highly qualified experienced conference interpreters mm -hmm. didn't do well in a charity situation mm. because of, they were so highly professionalized and structured and da 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 that right. they actually they weren't able to adapt to that more more community person-centered interaction you know so it like i say mm. it's it's, it's fascinating yeah fascinating area of work like I say, you have and a lot. And that's why I'm doing lot. the research. <laughs> exactly. You have to bring a lot of your knowledge to the table constantly because I think mm -hmm. people need to know. And I think it's like it can help each other, like your needs in very specific setting and the commercial needs and all of that. One can benefit from the other's knowledge. Yeah. And, and I think another another common misconception is that volunteers are um, have no experience at all. Mm. Um while charity translators completely disproves that uh, there's a huge number of um, volunteers who what we would class as on that benchmark of mm. professional and experienced yes yes I, I thought i thought about that because i see mm. a lot of people who work with other institutions or whatever in those settings and they seem to me that they're people who have been in the business for many years and they just yeah. find that they can contribute in a certain way so, absolutely yeah i yeah. that i thought it was already <laughs> established right because it's like a lot of people just they feel like it, they can bring something to the table and they just which is it. wonderful and i think yes. yes i think that's definitely an area that um people inside the translation industry can definitely you know add value by mm -hmm. by contributing to um to to charity work yeah right particularly so those you... that particularly mm -hmm. those that have no money should i say <laughs> <laughs> yes no because uh, with you we we realize that money isn't always the the issue right so because obviously you you can do your thing without having funding somehow and you manage and people are interested in your projects and they're keen to participate and as we can see in this community there are also a lot of people who are interesting in helping just for the sake of helping because it's a people to people <laughs> kind of thing so it's, i can't it's tell amazing. you you know the difference that volunteers that charity translators have made the impact they have had on people in communities mm -hmm. on on supporting charities to actually be more um diverse actually to you know to has has just been immense uh, and I really can never thank them enough because it's actually the volunteers that that really make it happen. Um, mm -hmm. And it's the volunteers that really make the difference, mm -hmm. um, which is, you know, it's it's amazing, really amazing.
Yeah, I guess we should find some time to talk to some of them one of these dates. So great idea. <laughs> yeah, I think we should do that. Gary, thank you so, so much. I will My pleasure. Uh, refrain from pronouncing your last name for now and maybe in in a <laughs> in a conversation in the future, I'll try to do it. Is it Botois? <laughs> I'll practice. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you so much for this. This was a, a different conversation. And I think uh, you brought a lot to the table. Your knowledge is unbelievable. And I'm sure that uh, the community that already is here for you will keep on being here for you. And I maybe we have more people interested, not that they'll listen to us and see how amazing you are and how knowledge knowledgeable you are, oh, because you. you are a real language worker. <laughs> so thank you so much. Yes. Can I just say one <laughs> last thing? Obviously, um, this this chat about community languages was really to, to highlight language rights mm -hmm. and as we said at the beginning um global language advocacy day mm -hmm. 22nd of february there are lots of initiatives events talks blogs um all around language rights and what that means and, and how to support it um so i'd really encourage everybody um to take a look at the program uh, they have a page on linkedin um and i'll be i'll be involved with it as well so yeah please get involved if you're going to be involved i'm sure that most of us will will see it and think about it so i will have a different approach on all of these things from now on so thank you so much thank i you, really Rita. appreciate it have a great day and we'll talk soon thank you <laughs>